I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 75 for November 2018. I'm Duncan, and 1975 was the year that Jaws dominated the box office, sure. and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest dominated the Oscars. It also saw many classics. Time for a list. Barry Lyndon, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Dog Day Afternoon, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Nashville, Love and Death, The Man Who Will Be King, Three Days of the Condor, and a favourite of mine in my teenage years, Death Race 2000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the biggie for horror, of course, was Jaws, as you say. It was also the year of William Shatner's weird satanic flick, The Devil's Reign, mm-hmm. also starring Ida Lupino. Uh, sign language vampire flick, Defula, mm-hmm. which I'd love to see. I've been looking for a copy. Mm-hmm. Haven't found one. Peter Fonda in Race with the Devil, mm-hmm. and the notorious Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. Right. But the 75 horror film for me is, of course, Dario Argento's wonderful Giallo Deep Red. I'll talk more about Argento later. But Deep Red is his masterpiece, uh, the best giallo of them all, and the film that ushered in the superbly creepy music of Goblin. Uh, the colours and camera work are real stars. But what will always stick with me about Argento's Deep Red is the bravery p- to put a vital piece of information on screen uh, and trust that he can misdirect the audience so that we won't see it mm. and, won't, and won't figure out the mystery. Uh, it staggered me when I first watched Deep Red, and I had to go back. And rewatch the film to see if I'd been tricked. I kind of thought, no, he can't have done that. Like he'd shot it twice, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I don't want to spoil anything too much, but I thought this is a this is a lie, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but I but I had been tricked, you know, when mm. I watched it, and it amazed me, and um, you know, that I'd been bamboozled by this. Uh, such a gutsy piece of filmmaking, I think. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and and there's something to be said for that because I think that a lot of films uh, and and a lot of books that are mysteries or thrillers. They uh, they kind of withhold so much information that you can you can possibly guess who it is, but you can't really tell like the yeah. motivation. You can't. What I'm trying to say is you can't necessarily follow the logic of A plus B equals C. You know that's why they oh, did man. it. And all the rest the of amount it. of midsummer murders I've watched. You know <laughs> we we you realise oh you never could have figured this out yeah. adequately because the clues weren't given to us. Yeah, you know? that's right. And yeah. uh, whereas this, as you say, the clue is given to you. Oh, totally. It's yeah. better than a midsummer murder. Yeah. So what have you been watching? Oh, okay. Well, look, um, I saw quite a bit this month. And obviously this month was October. We're coming out of mm-hmm. October, so it was Halloween month. Mm-hmm. So I saw a decent amount of horror. Uh, but I feel I need to talk about Suspiria. Oh, well, as do I. So Oh, okay. <laughs> We're going to be going back and forth. All right. <laughs> this will be interesting. Uh, look, I went into this with lowish expectations, mainly because I had no sense that this remake should try to equal Argento's masterful original. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't like thinking, oh, how's it going to hold up? Because I, I, I don't care. The 77 Suspiria is, is a unique beast. It really is. So much of why it works is down to style, the style mm. of a director at the peak of his game, Wonderful cinematography by Luciano Tavoli. And, of course, the iconic score by Pog Rockers Goblin again. Mm. No remake can or should try to replicate Argento's masterpiece. I think that would be madness. Yeah. All I hoped for was a horror film that blazed its own like spooky path. Mm. And I have to say I was kind of disappointed. Right. Uh, this new Suspiria is gorgeous, no doubt, mm-hmm. as helmed by uh, Luca Guadagnino. Guadagnino, yep. Oh, 
well done. <laughs> hey, it's a spirit full of dreamlike visuals. His dance scenes are weird, beautifully surreal, and occasionally disturbing. And it has a wonderful evocation of Soviet-era Eastern Bloc architecture. It looks great. But I thought it's a horror flick. It's kind of a bust. Mm-hmm. Running two and a half hours, mm. uh, the 2018 Suspiria apparently has other things on its mind than, you know, scaring its audience. It's, a, it's an art film in horror fancy dress. Keen to deal with the subject of the shadow of German war guilt, you know. Subjects modern horror fans are no doubt jonesing to address. <laughs> hey? Communicated clumsily by people reading news stories and listening to radio reports about terrorist acts. And that's the, I, I really hate it when that's how they communicate mm. things. It's like that... You know, I pointed that out happening in Death Wish, so I don't want to yeah. see it happening. In, um, I thought the desire to give thematic weight to a story, which in my opinion, film doesn't need, at least in this ham-fisted kind of slow-burn manner, is just one of the ways this version of Suspiria distances the audience, you know, rather than mm. pulling them in to make the terror kind of a personal thing. The other is two characters whose motivations, backstories, and purposes seem kind of obtuse to me. The original Susie Banyan, and again, I apologise for de- comparing the two films, but it's kind of important in this case. I'm not comparing mm. them as 70s, you know, 5 Suspiria versus 2018, but just mm. a, a horror film that works for me. Um, she was our, our way into the film. We cared about her, worried about her as people were butchered alongside her. Mm. And we discovered the sinister forces arrayed against her at the same time as she did, mm. you know, slowly uncovering and defeating the Coven at the heart of the dance academy. But this one, Susie, is different. She's an enigma. She's not even really the main character, I felt, a lot of the time. Um, she doesn't appear to care about what's happening around her, and we, the audience, are always well ahead of her. So there's no surprise in any of her discoveries. The other potential audience surrogate is an aged psychiatrist, a kind of update in the original Udo Kier character, played distractingly, I thought, because I knew this going in, by Tilda Swinton in one of her three roles. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. I, I, I don't know, but it pulls me out of the film. It forces me to look at the makeup, you know, and like study yeah. it, particularly in scenes where it might be a little less convincing. Mm-hmm. It once again distances me from. Mm-hmm. Feeling a part of this, this, this yeah. what I'm supposed, this terror I'm supposed to be feeling. I'm being, you know, it's making it harder for me, harder for me to care about the plight. Um, so for all of those reasons, this this suspiria doesn't work as a horror film for me. Mm-hmm. I was shocked once during the screening. There was one moment that did, did really shock me. It seems a pretty low ratio to minutes of screen time for <laughs> yeah. a 150 minute movie. It's gory. I mean, yeah. really gory. But that's just one of the t- tools in a horror film director's toolbox. And in my opinion, not even really the, the best. Mm. Um, a good horror film, like, say, the 1975 version of Suspiria, has tension. It makes you worry about its characters. It shocks you, sometimes disgusts you, mm. and makes you feel the fear of the people in the film. Mm. And that's why this version of Suspiria didn't gel for me, because it's a horror film. I just don't think it works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Sorry, I just want to pick up one thing you said. You called it Coven. I know. And, and I know. Yeah. Did you do that intentionally? Because it's from an American movie. I can't movie. help it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I often mean Every to say I, Coven, yeah. but, but then um, that, that memory of American yeah. <laughs> movie coaching. I know. It's got that thing where uh, I'm the same. Whenever I see the word written, I just I, I, I go just, straight to American movie. I, totally. Every time. And even as I said it, <laughs> I thought, oh, I said it wrong. I said it because of American movie. But it's, I just love that um, it's pronounced... But, the guy who's directed it, the guy whose vision is, doesn't even know how to pronounce the title. Oh, yes, yeah, wonderful. Which is everything you need to know about yeah, that Yeah, and I actually know how to pronounce it, but yeah, the guy's no. full man. <laughs> exactly. But it's one of those holdovers, like, um, if, if somebody was to say to me, do I care about something, I have to go, I care. <laughs> I have to say it like Luke Skywalker does and stuff yeah. every time. <laughs> yeah, well, um, like, Gus, like Gus Van Sant taking on the mother of all American slasher films, Psycho, yeah. Uh, Luca Guadagnino taking on the heaviest of heavyweight Italian horror films, Suspiria, is bound to divide opinion. Well, let's face it, I mean, 1998's Psycho didn't really divide opinion. I mean, it's pretty much reviled, right? Yeah. Um, 
and, and, and for this reason, I think Suspiria will probably fare a little bit better with people who aren't familiar necessarily mm. with the original. Um, first Guadagnino, as you say, has made a really has made his own film here. Yeah. Um, doing like a 180 on the iconic color palette of the uh, 77 original, employing this Call Me By Your Name cinematographer, Sayimbu Makdeeprom. Guadagnino presents everything in autumn colors and dull gray, which I quite liked that he just made that decision to... Good looking film. It is, yeah. Unlike Argento's breathless opening, Guadagnino takes his time getting to horror. Uh, but his first, and I possibly agree with you here, only horror scene is the strongest. That's what I thought. I thought it was a visceral, torturous, and expert piece of work that really was the highlight of the film for me, that first dance scene. Yep. And kind of Dakota Johnson's vague, glassy-eyed presence kind of works in this film compared to the other th- other films I've seen her in. Usually I don't really kind of care for her that much. Yeah. But this one, it kind of works with it. I remember often saying about Kirsten Dunst, like sleepwalking through films. Yeah. And, yeah, it, yeah. and it worked in Melancholia. I kind yeah. of felt the same way here. It was like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as you say, it keeps you at arm's length, which, and what I found interesting is kind of halfway through the film, you almost start turning um, kind of allegiances or, or your empathy is more with the other character. I can't remember who's... Yeah, her friend. Her friend, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, yeah. she seems a bit more human to all of this, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, has more of a human reaction. Uh, and as you say, Tilda Swinton gets to play three roles, although you'll only recognize her in the one. Yeah. Uh, that of uh, Madame Blanc, the dance academy leader it's just kind of role she can do without even acting right yeah. i mean i just think that's basically tilda swinton you know? yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. that's how she is that's how she holds herself talks uh i didn't realize that she was the um old man character oh, okay but i as soon as i saw the old man characters went that's prosthetics yes. so i was like okay so why have it's they done this isn't it? yeah and i kept waiting for him to be aged down or then flashing back to yeah. show some younger i didn't realize it tilda swinton so i assumed it was some dude and they've just like yeah i was like yeah. why have they done this, this is a bit weird the film's witch theme, so mysterious in the original, is more pronounced in a matter-of-fact fashion here. Yep. Like they kind of just get into it quite simply without much fuss, whereas that's kind of the central mystery in the original. But its themes are more global, you know, matriarchy, guilt, abuse of power, all presented in kind of a more pagan view of the world, as if the autumn colours represent a forgotten connection with the natural world and the grey is like the dull grind of fascism. Suspiria has some really great dance sequences. Mm. I really enjoyed those. I yep. thought like, and I'm not someone who really enjoys dance sequences in films. You know what I mean? You know, usually. And he's talking about singing in the rain, of course. Oh, I love it. I actually really love good dance sequences. I love certain dance sequences. I mean, modern dance. I mean, interpretive dance. That kind of stuff doesn't mm. usually capture me. You know what I mean? Not not old school Hollywood, you know, oh, dance sequences. Yeah. I like those. I, I like a narrative dance. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. You really feel this film's length. Like to a massive sure. extent, uh, its focus on like a layer cake of muddled themes just overwhelms the effectiveness of the horror. Yep. And as a suspenseful narrative, genuine horror and sustained atmosphere, you can't go past the 77 original. Uh, and I love Radiohead and Tom York's score is fantastic. But damn, I was hoping for a nod to Goblin. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was really hoping. But well, the only thing was there was those breathy sort of whispers that were yeah. worked into the soundtrack, which reminded me of Goblin. Yeah. There's no one going, can... witch, witch. Yes. Which is funny seeing as Radiohead's last album had uh, the, the lead single off it was called Burn the Witch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he knew he was doing this. Yeah. As anyone who's listened to this podcast before knows, we're massive um, Suspiria fans. Yeah. So it's one of my favourite horror films. It would be in the top five, oh, ten so it's of all time for me. One of the best colour horror films there is, I think. Yeah. You know, we're living, I've said it before, this golden age of horror where there are a lot of people making art, arty, really arty horror films mm. that really work. So I don't mm. think there's an excuse for making a film which 
doesn't work at its primary purpose, I yeah. guess. You yeah. Know? Except for that single dance, that opening dance. Yeah. I think that that's genuinely, sure, that, that was genuinely good. effective. Yeah. And yeah. And, um, oh, and I apologize once or twice I referred to this as this, the original Suspiria 75, which I was only doing because we were talking about 75 also the intro. So yeah. No, yeah, I know it's Rosso, 75. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I know it's not a 75 film. Otherwise, that would have been the best year of his life. Eh? <laughs> yeah. <that's laughs> Deep Red and Suspiria in the same year. Yeah, Just right. knocking them out, you know, in a summer vacation. Yeah, but still, you know, two years apart is not bad, eh? No, fantastic. I'm convinced that the current spread of belief in magic and the occult is part of mental illness. Bad luck isn't brought by broken mirrors, but by broken minds. All right, so welcome to No Comps. This is the part of the podcast where we go out and review a film that's a new release. And uh, we went to Halloween because it was Halloween. What, what else were we going to do? Exactly. Uh, so this is the 2018 Halloween starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, and Andy Matishek. Yeah, why that's not? Enough. She's not listening. Written by Danny McBride and David Gordon Green and directed by David Gordon Green. 40 years after he came home, Serial killer Michael Myers is about to be transferred from his prison hospital when he is visited by two podcasters. I mean, podcasters. Is there anyone stupider? Oh, oh the die. worst. Meanwhile, the survivor of those attacks 40 years ago, Laurie Strode, has been waiting his return, and her broken relationship with her daughter and granddaughter means they won't heed her warnings when Michael escapes custody and returns to his hometown. Okay, so I've already talked about this on the Spoiler Alert Facebook page, but I'm going to go through it again, mostly because it muses the hell out of me. <laughs> but here's a film-by-film film primer on the Halloween franchise, okay? So the first Halloween came out in 1978, followed by a sequel three years later that picked up on the action immediately after the end of the original. Halloween 3 came next, and it had nothing whatsoever to do with the first two films and would never be referenced by the films followed. It's a complete outlier, Though, weirdly, ideas in that film did kind of bleed into some of the sequels, even if none of the narrative does. Uh, Halloween 4 came out 10 years after the original, naturally ignoring Part 3, and was followed by the woeful Parts 5 and 6, con- which continued the storyline. Then Halloween H2, H2O, as it's sometimes referred, came out in 1998, bringing Jamie Lee Curtis back after being out of the story since Part 2. It also ignored Parts 3, of course, Mm-hmm. through to six, effectively making it a straight sequel to part two. Uh, this was followed by Halloween Resurrection, which proved to be anything but a re- resurrection, killing of Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode, and the franchise at the same time. Uh, so if you're still following all this, uh, Halloween would be rebooted, inevitably, in 2007 by Rob Zombie, who would provide a sequel two years later, which leads us to now, the 2018 Halloween, which says, to hell with all that noise... Forget those other nine films. This is the one true sequel, the original Halloween. I mean, that is the most messed up film franchise timeline ever, eh? I yeah. can't think of a film franchise that does something like that. Yeah. Uh, let me lead off my review by asking you, the viewer and listener, a question. What are you reasonably expecting from a 40-year-old horror franchise on its 11th installment, a series that has two films called Halloween 2, and this is the third film in the series called Halloween yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's 11 films, but five of them are basically two titles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I kind of expect not to see Buster Rhymes. Yeah, if, that's... If probably like, if, if I don't see Buster Rhymes, I'm probably, you know, you're halfway to a good review right there. Yeah. And, and also, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Laurie Strode, has actually been killed off twice in the series. So she's been killed off off screen in part off-screen, five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, part four. They talk about her being killed off. And uh, on screen in part eight, 
eight. Yeah. Yeah. So it got me thinking: Is there any horror series that has stuck to any rigid continuity? I'm wondering if there's any horror series that has really. St- I mean, this is the most egregious example that I can think of of mainstream horror. Yeah. That that's really leapt around. But yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking. Obviously, we did the Friday the Thirteenth yeah. franchise recently. Until eight, we we're in pretty good shape. Yeah. But then nine is a real like it messes yeah. with things, and then ten is like ignores the other one. It's like yeah. ah, here we are again. Yeah. And, and then of course, Freddy vs Jason again kind yeah. of seems to take off after part seven, I would imagine. But, yeah. Okay, but with the big advantage, I think, and the big reason for resetting the timeline of the franchise is it gets rid of all the pesky Myers mythology. You know, mm. Laurie is no longer the sister of Michael. There's no more weird Sam Hain cult connections, which I never understood that. Eh? <laughs> it's just Michael chasing down the girl that got away. Uh, and what a boon it is to have Jamie Lee Curtis back, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, this film would not have been the monster-sized hit it is without it. Because Michael himself has always seemed to, to me at least, a pretty vanilla villain. Mm-hmm. Um, frequently in the sequels, that mask and that like shocker here makes him look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like I think when I was watching, I don't know, 6 and definitely 7, he just looked kind of stupid. You yeah. know? It's not a really strong look. It's not like the hockey mask. It's not that iconic look. It looks good in this film, fortunately. The makeup really works and the design looks good. But it's the hero that makes the drama of Halloween work. I mean, if you think of the Alien franchise and you take Ripley out of it, you know? Mm. Or even um, the Nightmare on Elm Streets, once Nancy's not in it, it never really is convincing, you know? Mm. You need, uh, this is something off, you need that chemistry of, um, you know, the vi- not just the villain, but also the, the hero. Mm. And I think that's one of the weaknesses the Friday 13th series has and why a reboot's never going to be as strong as Halloween, this Halloween, yeah. you know, at least not at the box office because people aren't going to hear about bringing back Tommy Jarvis, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, you and I would, eh? Oh, I love if Feldman comes back, <laughs> you know. I'm sure he wants to do it. Oh, he loved it. I'm surprised they haven't got him back for it, actually. Yeah. Somewhere along the way. Oh, well, I don't know. Is it... Back about that time when they were doing Jason X, surely, and, and yeah. Jack Goes to Hell, I would have thought they would have. Yeah. Um, and look, I think Jamie Lee Curtis is, is indeed pretty wonderful in this. She's earned the right to crawl all over Twitter about how this was the biggest opening weekend of, for a film with a female star over the age of 55. Mm. You know, that's great. She's in this. She deserves to be in Ryan Johnson's all-star murder mystery, Knives Out, which I think came off the back of this film's success. And, right. Um, and none of this would have happened without her, you know? Mm. She's kind of ferocious and broken, angry, and may- maybe a bit remorseful about the life she's le- led for a little while. Mm. There's a joy to see her with a gun in hand stalking after the man who's ruined her life, you know? Mm. Yeah, there's an interesting um, interview I saw with Jamie Lee Curtis, and she was uh, it was it was around the time I think of um, Halloween H two O, and she was saying that um, Halloween, along with, was the best role she ever had until True Lies. Really? Yeah, she said they were the two, and um, and that Not was that really aerobics tr- movie she did with John Travolta. Perfect. No, no, and but neither Trading Places nor Fiscal Wonder, you know, vital to the plot. You know, fought yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like had a character arc, I guess, and, and showed, you know, resolve and those kind of things. So it's interesting to hear her talk about that and saying that she'd always been proud of doing Halloween. It's a pretty good character in the original age. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that um, Halloween pays pleasing fan service in fairly unobtrusive ways. Uh, the Judith Myers gravestone from the original, the garage massacre from part four, Jamie Lee Curtis in a closet full of hanger wires. Yeah. Um, and of course, the reversal of Michael falling from the balcony and magically disappearing. Yeah, I got a kick out of that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the most kind of obvious one that, yeah. you know, even if you're a passing viewer, you'll probably go, oh, yeah, I recognize that. Yeah. So I quite like those. They didn't kind of overwhelm. Yeah, it's a good reversal. Yeah. And I thought tonally Halloween walked the line pretty well, offering a bit of teen sex, drugs, and booze to tick the hedonism boxes. 
um, with without diving into exploitation. Occasionally surprising with the fate of characters. Although if alarm bells aren't ringing where Michael Myers' psychiatrist is, I was a student of Dr. Loomis. Uh, then you haven't seen enough Halloween films <laughs> because Loomis goes from obsessed to unhinged over the f- course of four films pretty quick and um, pretty deep. Uh, it also has the characters acting stupidly, you know, like in the, in, uh, in fact, virtually everyone who dies acts stupidly at some point in this film. My, my pet theory, just going back to yeah. Loomis, is that uh, when Michael Myers was a little kid and killed his sister, yeah. he probably could have been cured if he'd had anyone but Loomis. Yeah, that's right. Loomis is so insane as that series goes on that yeah. I think he turned Myers from like a clearly troubled child into yeah. a mass murderer. Right, he, yeah. You know, I believe he created him. Yeah. That's my pet Halloween right. theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, yeah. It's, it's a pretty decent theory, I think. <laughs> I thought like the the boyfriend role is an interesting twist, as he kind of starts off as like likable, yeah. courteous, and cool with cross dressing for a fancy dress dance, and then just turns out to be like a drunk sleaze. Yeah. And what is most shocking is that we never see him again. Yeah. Like in days would... gone by, he would have been slaughtered in the most like with totally. extreme prejudice. Instead, his buddy is. Yeah. Yeah. And you just don't even see him again. I'm yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Why? Yeah, it's interesting. Eh? There, there will be plenty, and I'm sure there are plenty of uh, Me Too references and reviews, you know? Sure. Uh, after all, this film ends with three final girls across three generations, mm-hmm. you know, teaming up to take down the man who's ruined their lives in one way or another. But I don't know. I spent my life watching women stand tall and stand up against monstrous, multi-murdering mm-hmm. men, you know, mm-hmm. in the movies. That's been my like, most of my teenage years mm-hmm. watching those films. Um, these three aren't the first, and this Halloween maybe leans into it a little bit harder. It's probably yeah. more aware of its place in history. So it's not exactly breaking new ground. Yeah. But I get why they would lean on things like having that boyfriend be such a jerk yeah. and then the next guy be kind of also a complete jerk as well. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah, no, I it, it was just was interesting that that guy got away with not getting oh. killed. Like, I found that shocking. I mean, it says you said, you know, like in Starship Troopers, you have all these... Pretty young things getting torn apart, and it's like uh, you don't have Neil Patrick Harris getting eaten. Yeah, like, I know. <laughs> how's that possible? Oh, look! If this was Friday Thirteenth Part Four, that guy would have walked out of the back of the party to have a brewski at the back and yeah. got knifed. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, he would have wandered off and heard a sound, and yeah, would have been the end of him. Uh, look, as early as the first sequel in 1981, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill claimed their biggest hurdle was that they had nothing left to say or anywhere to take the story. So, where this Halloween is successful, as you just said, is thematically. Identifying the brutality of man, uh, its effects on generations of women, and most depressingly, how this kind of will never stop. Yeah. Laurie Strode is the embodiment of trauma, inflicting the effects of it on her own family. Uh, But having the strength to never capitulate to its suffocating influence as well. Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't actually have that large of a role in the film, but but by the same token, it's one of the few Halloween films that would be unimaginable without her presence. Yeah. Curious is that Halloween is both a sequel and yet essentially a remake. Like, events unfold in an inevitable, predestined sort of way and exist in this netherworld, clearly having enough quality and points of difference to stand out from the pack, but also never ramping up the terror to nerve-shredding levels of being different in story design or aesthetics. Yep. And so that was like a little bit of an issue for me, I guess. And, and this may seem like an odd criticism, but I kind of missed Haddonfield as a character. You know, the town. Isn't there a bit? It, yeah, it's just, it's it's strongly presented in the original and even mm. in part four. But here we don't really spend any time roaming around the streets or seeing idyllic daylight slowly giving way to murderous darkness. We just slam straight into night and babysitters ready to be slaughtered. I think that really missed a trick in that transition from, yeah. from day to night. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a thing that the original Halloween does so beautifully, which is that capturing that essence of Halloween and you know yeah. the leaves and the in the street and like you say, day turning into night and the pumpkins coming out and the yeah. lights. You get that a bit because you do get the night time and I love seeing the pumpkins with the lights mm. and everything. But you're right, you don't see that beginning of the night as the trick or treaters start coming out yeah. of school and into their work. You know, yeah, this is one of the things I love about the original. Yeah, so do I. Um, look, it starts with a. There are some sequences I really like, and I just want to sort of bring those. It starts with a really solid sequence set inside the asylum. It's uh, Michael Myers, where Michael Myers has spent the last 40 years. I appreciate it being a really creepy, broad daylight scene, you know? Yeah. That one where he's in the the big courtyard, the open area. Mm. Uh, it was probably the moment when I watched the trailer that first convinced me, oh, this might be really worth looking mm. at. It might be a really interesting film, you know? And there's some other memorable uh, scenes along the way. Myers' escape from a prison, truck, uh, prison bus during a foggy night is creepy. And ends with the implied death of a child, which mm. is always a, you know, a bold call in any film, I think. Um, and there's a murder scene that makes great use out of time security lights that are triggered by, um, by movement, which I thought was really cool. I mm. don't think I'd seen that done, you know. Yeah. The pair of podcasters getting dealt to, which is fair, because there is, is there anything more annoying than two podcasters? <sighs> I mean, I ask you, you know, am I right, Duncan? <laughs> yeah, completely. It's intolerable. You know, one podcast, but you get two at the same time. Oh, Awful. Just, get rid of them all. Yeah. Though I think there should be some sort of moratorium on killing in dodgy toilet cubicles, you know, where somebody's mm. in the toilet and yeah. being shaked around and they're trying to crawl under and all of that. Um, it feels a little bit played out for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, sorry, just with both those things you talk about, the, both the scene with going to see Michael in the uh, hospital mm. and also that toilet scene, just given away in the trailer, like even the kind of setup to them and everything, you know, like uh, because those podcasters take a while to die. And I knew that they were going to eat it in the toilet, so it was kind of felt The toilet like... seems more of a giveaway in the trailer than the visiting them in the... Yeah. That's just like, oh, it makes me think, wow, they've done some really interesting things yeah. the way they shot it. But yeah, I watched the trailer again today, and you're quite right. The um, the mm. toilet cubicle scene is like, ah, oh, you're giving away a death now. Yeah, and, and and quite deep into the film. Like, I thought they were going to die pretty much immediately after they got out of there. Yeah. And instead, it's way later on. Like, he escapes, and then... Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That is, yeah. One of those films that takes a while to do its killings actually, yeah. and has them spaced out for a little bit mm. um, like I was thinking I, how many people do you think die in this film I, you know on yeah, screen not maybe five I yeah. think probably a couple off screen mm. but that's always been Halloween Halloween's never yeah. been the most bloodthirsty of things no but certainly not the first one first one wasn't at all no no, no, no! I think it's five people all all, all up. Yeah. I think in the first one, and I yeah, and they're pretty much just kind of stabbed. Yeah, they're just stabbed. Just, just stabbed. Just stabbed. Just stabbed. And yeah. I watched um Halloween H2O just recently, and was yeah. surprised by how long it took for yeah. that to get anywhere. Eh? It takes a while to go. A real slow burn. Eh? But in this one, you know, dudes are getting their heads hollowed out and like torches stuck into the the empty, you know, <laughs> cavity brain head cavities. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and so like, how long did it take you to do that? Oh, yeah, you know. Well, <laughs> I don't know. How long would it take? I'm it, not sure. Do you have that time? Yeah. You know, I don't know. If there's anyone listening out there who's done that, please don't get in contact. <laughs> yeah. Look, in the end for me, the things that will make this a disappointment to some people are the things that gave me such pleasure in the cinema at the time I was watching mm-hmm. it. It's a relatively simple Halloween sequel that knows what made the original work and is happy to serve you up more of the same, you know? Mm-hmm. It doesn't want to explore pagan cultists working to summon the spirit of Michael Myers, you know, or whatever the hell happened in part five. And it's not asking the question no one wanted answering. What would happen if someone filmed an online reality show in, like, the old Myers house and asked Buster Rhymes to produce it? And maybe Tyler Banks to, you know? Yeah. Um, it just lets Michael escape again and pick up the work. It's not fancy, uh, but it knows enough to stand clear and, Mi- and, and let Michael and Laurie do their thing. 
if it had come out in the middle of the series, you know, hopefully in the place of that ridiculous Paul Rudd one, I would have been delighted with this, you know? Mm. And sometimes, especially in a slasher film, all I ask is that someone knows the right ingredients, how to prepare them, and doesn't decide to screw it all up by thinking they should reinvent the genre. Yeah. Yeah, no, yep, absolutely. Uh, in summary for me, I, I'm hedging my bets in this review. Halloween is a solid watch, but I almost kind of found it instantly forgettable as well. This is perhaps the curse of the horror sequel. Look, while it never immerses the viewer in terror for long stretches, Halloween does contain suspenseful sequences, really decent jump scares, and the strongest memories actually linger from the climax where it finally attempts to do something different from the extremely familiar first two-thirds. Like, the more I go back and think about that, I'm like, it's, it's a bit of like The Force Awakens of Halloween, where I'm like, well, this is just essentially a remake of the beginning of the first one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you base, if you take Jamie Lee Curtis out of that, I know that's a big if, but if you, she doesn't really do that much until the end. You know what I mean? Mm. If you take her out of that, then it's essentially uh, Halloween over, all over again. I get the Force Awakens comparison. <laughs> hey, we're going to do a Star Wars. Yeah. Um, but but that's more egregious to me, just because there are so many plot points that have to happen for that thing to oh, do everything. Sure. Whereas slasher films are always follow a, a yeah. very well. They feel like they follow a pretty strict sort of yeah. you know narrative, and so yeah. And but, so, but this but this one's him him escaping. You know, sure. Uh, psychiatrist on the loose as well. But if you see, yeah, the psychiatrists, and the, yeah, yeah, although they do some interesting yeah. some spins on that. But if you'd asked me what I wanted to see from a Halloween film, probably yeah. a lot of this would be what I'd want to see. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's fair enough. Um, yeah. But yeah. I agree. I mean, it's yeah. reasonably forgettable. But then again, it's part of 11. And, yeah. um, <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> that, that, that's how I open my, the, the, the yeah, thing yeah, is, yeah. what do you, what do you reasonably oh. expect from this? And, and this is totally what I reasonably expected. I just think the suspense wasn't quite there for long periods yep. of time. The scene with the crashed bus is yep. effective. The scene, actually, the scene in the toilet is suspenseful. Yeah, it is. Uh, um, and the ending is, has got some really suspenseful moments in yeah, it. Yeah, I think the ending's pretty solid. Um, yeah. That moment where Judy Greer turns from victim to. You know, yeah, to fighting back, yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. It happens on a dime. I love it. Yeah, no, it, it is good, uh, and it does enough different in there, and yet has familiar stuff in there as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I guess my criteria are really different. You know, like yeah. I'm not going to love this film or, or you no. know want to add it. Um, I probably will add it to my library. Actually, who am I? <laughs> but it's you know, it's not going to be like a top film for me. But um, my criteria yeah. for judging part of eleven in this franchise, it's been like I said right at the beginning, just an yeah. absolute mess. Yeah. Uh, probably a little more generous. And they are for some other films. Hello, Michael. My name is Aaron Corey. I've been following your case for years and still know very little about you. I'd like to know more. About that night. About those involved. Do you ever think about them, Michael? Feel guilt about their fate? And now we're on to the top five. This is kind of like a guide for films for your own Halloween night movie marathon. Yep. So you could do a lot worse than choosing the five that we're going to talk about. For those who have attended the Halloween movie nights that my illustrious co-host Simon here held every year for nearly a decade, you'll remember that he has an innate understanding of what resonates with an audience. I was always curious to see the films that Simon had selected each year. Sometimes his picks would help me revisit films that had affected me quite severely in my teen years, like Basket Case or Society. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that they were entertainingly twisted, so they'd do the trick and work a treat at the Halloween viewing. But it was always the ones that I hadn't seen before that excited me the most. 
So many great movies like the beautifully incoherent but visually striking Japanese art horror Haosu to the gloriously tacky 80s exploitation of Death Spa. Mm-hmm. So this top five we present tonight is twofold. Firstly, if you're planning a horror movie night, then look no further than these five films. They're guaranteed to captivate any fun-loving horror audience with laughs and jumps. But secondly, it gives me a chance to sing the praises of Simon's excellent taste in horror. It's been an educational and fun experience watching all these. And as a curator of horror movie nights, you can't do any better than Simon Fists of Stone Lambert's choices. Oh, man, that is the most beautiful intro. That's so nice. Thank you so much for that. You see, you have a lot to live up to now. Oh, I totally do. But <laughs> hey, I just want to say also, um, I played Society because you to- you reminded me of Society. Yeah. So um, that got picked. that was your pick, really. Um, yeah. I hadn't thought to play it that, that year. And then I, oh, yeah, Society. And I rewatched it and thought, Society. <laughs> yeah, I love that film. It's so bonkers. Oh, it's insane. Yeah, and just the way it's like a, feels like a cheesy 80s film. And then the last half hour hits and it's yeah. like, Oh, what is this? It's like Beverly Hills 90210 um, yeah. at the, for the first like three quarters. Yeah. And then the last quarter is just like David Cronenberg on acid. And that's saying something because David yeah. Cronenberg's pretty much on acid yeah. anyway. Yeah, totally. So, that first hour, everyone's just laughing at the fashions <laughs> and the acting styles. Yeah. And then everyone's going, what the hell's happening? What is <laughs> what is the shunt? Why, why am I watching this? You know, it's great. Oh, so thank you for that intro. That's no beautiful. Worries. Look, for my first film, I like to ease into things on Halloween night. You know, maybe start with a more gentle horror offering before we get into the less tasteful treats, perhaps. Um, partly this is because I knew a fun fright flick would get Mrs. Lambert to shop for an hour and change before she left us to the more despicable delights of the night, you know? <laughs> but I also think a Halloween marathon is a bit like a sports event. You want to warm up first, and you need to do that with something genuinely funny and enjoyable, especially while people are still arriving and you know, sorting out their snacks and adjusting their bean bags and you know, yeah. all of that stuff. Which is not to say the first film of the night is somehow lesser. In the past, we've played great fun movies like Shaun of the Dead, uh, Evil Dead 2, John Dies at the End. Real audience pleases both. Mm. Uh, it's just that I think the first one should be a real pure good time flick, you know? Mm. Like my pick for this list, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil from 2010. In Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, a bunch of photogenic college kids head up to the woods for a week of partying, dope smoking, and skinny dipping, only to run into a pair of scary backwoods rednecks. Before you can say deliverance, the kids are getting killed off one by one. And I know what you're thinking at this point. This all sounds like every other cliched horror flick choking up the shelves at your local video store, if you still have local video stores. But in a delightfully goofy twist, the rednecks in this film actually appear fairly lovable innocents, you know? Who just happen to be misunderstood by the dim-witted kids who seem intent on getting accidentally killed. Uh, in the most gruesome manner possible, my personal favourite might be Death by Wood Chipper, you know? <laughs> um, what really helps Tucker and Dale sing is, of course, Tucker and Dale themselves, played by... Tyler Labine and Alan Tudyk, who are so charming and whose love for each other propels the story, uh, along with their shock at how these idiot college kids keep on getting themselves killed. Uh, it's a warm-hearted, red-blooded, and pretty darn funny cult comedy. Uh, it's both great fun and a great way to get warmed up for the Halloween madness to follow. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed Tucker, Tucker yep. and Dale vs. Evil. Yeah, and i got to say too, I've never wanted a sequel quite as badly as I want a sequel for this film. I really do. Yeah. It's not that it has some sort of open ending or anything like that. It's just I want those characters back again. You know, yeah. I just love them so much. It pains me they haven't managed to make that happen. Yeah, they've been talking about that. I've, I've often seen every now and then it's yeah. cropped up that people have been talking about it. And yeah, yeah. And it's a bit of a cult favourite, so I would have thought they might have, you know. Ah, it's a real shame. a low budget kind of... Uh, sequel as you say yeah I, I i really enjoyed the hell out of this film and again it was thanks to simon to watch it in the first place um and you're right that that opening slot is really important and we've had some you know you've, you've played some really great films to mm. begin with and i think there's something 
I think there's something that's really competently made. Yeah. <laughs> and is slightly more modern and or classic. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like Evil Dead, like you say, Evil Dead 2, or something more modern with that's kind of like yeah. Tuckendale versus Evil or Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Yeah, that'll get people on side. I'm picking a lot of these films on our list aren't competently made, and that's no. the joy of those. But that first one, I just I feel like you've got to have something people can yeah. you know, handle quite easily and that's right. set the tone in a way. You know? Yeah. And so your your film. Uh, so so my first film is now now uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I actually think this was around about ten o'clock you played. I think this was like the, the maybe the third film that sure, you played sure, on the sure. night, but it, it's just slotted into the second. Uh, but I think that when you played it was a perfect time. It was either at ten o'clock or midnight. Right, I can't right. remember. Now podcast you're all probably familiar with. How did this get made? Did an early episode on this film, Sleepaway Camp. Mm-hmm. And it contains a lengthy discussion where the hosts are attempting to disseminate how the familial characters in the opening scene are related to one another. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast is a genuinely perplexed. <laughs> Honestly, this discussion goes through like 10, 15 solid minutes. And they become like giggling wrecks of frustration, just trying to figure out the relationship between just five people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is emblematic of the endless entertainment this film provides. For a cinematic experience, watch this with an audience for the first time. It is guaranteed maximum engagement and laughs. There isn't a dull moment in Sleepaway Camp. Released in 1983, it is a Friday the 13th knockoff that has an absolutely unforgettable ending. Where the film differs from many other slashes is that it casts adolescents in the central roles. So actual kids. It's Meatballs meets Jason with actual kids who are struggling with fitting in or growing up and then just throws a brutal killer into the mix. Mm. The attacks are sometimes inventive, like a beehive being employed as a weapon, Mm. and sometimes ridiculous, like a man injured by falling into a steaming vat of water while boiling potatoes. (laughs) I just never figure out how that works. Mm. And somehow James Earl Jones' dad gets mixed up in the movie and is cast as a camp employee. That's crazy. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, James Earl Jones. Yeah, there's a guy in it who's, um, yeah, yeah he, he, you like, is it James Earl Jones? That's actually his dad. No. Well, yeah. Is that the guy who's working with the, the super seedy cook at the beginning? Yeah. And the cook is like, that's the seediest guy ever, eh? He's yeah. clearly like some sort of horrible pedophile. Yeah. And it, the James Earl Jones dad's like, <laughs> yeah. He thinks it's funny or something. It's, yeah. You know, oh, you, what a <laughs> way. Oh, man, I didn't realize it. Yeah. So yeah, the same year that his son's voicing like Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi, he's doing Sleepaway <laughs> Camp. Like it's just two classics. Yeah. At the same time. <laughs> but the plot surrounds Angela, who is a quiet girl relentlessly ridiculed by other campers. She placidly accepts it while her brother, Ricky, amusingly flies into wild rages with the smallest mm. provocation. Mm. <laughs> like he's just really Yeah. Just, uh, flies with the handle, it's great. Other male campers hang around in obscenely short cut-off jeans and cropped tank tops. Yeah. It's tempting to think that the filmmakers were putting the camp into sleepaway camp. Uh, yeah. But it's pretty obvious that they thought this was the height of fashion. Yeah. But the 80s permissiveness is jarring in this film. As are the self-aware quirks of some of the adult actors, like the unnervingly blissed-out mother character in the opening. Oh, she's incredible. <laughs> she's so good. And yeah. uh, that almost has, it. again, we're going back to Argento, it has almost like a Profondo Rosso kind of feel to things yeah, yeah. Um, in there. Sleepaway Camp was cult enough at the time to produce a number of sequels, some starring Bruce Springsteen's sister. Mm. Uh, and we can dance around it all we want, but it's that ending of Sleepaway Camp that burns into the viewer's memory forever. Yeah, we could, I wouldn't dare give it away, but yeah. it is amazing. It is incredible. I've, I've only seen one of the sequels, and that was base, and it was pretty terrible. Mm. Um, the same, the, the, the girl who plays Angela was back for it as well. Right, yeah. And um, I only 
watched it based on the title, which was Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland. Yeah. Yeah. Had to watch That's that. That's right. Not I, good. No, I can imagine not. I think they had three sequels. Uh, yeah, I believe so. They yeah, had yeah. a two, three, and the fourth, the Sleepaway Camp 4, was actually directed, I think, by the guy who did the first film. Right. And they're the only two films he's ever directed. Wow. Yeah. I don't know how he didn't get a big studio deal. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, just doing the Goonies a couple of years later. <laughs> <laughs> just like, yeah, you've done a film with kids, right? Like, yeah. yeah oh, I have done film with yeah, kids. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah, Sleepaway Camp. Oh, it's a marvellous film. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Look, the middle film of the evening for me is where you really let your freak flag fly. Uh, maybe it's because the audience has already sat through two films and might be getting comfortable. Now's the time to give them a shock, you know? And what better film to do that with than 1981's A Burial Ground, Night of Terror? Uh, Burial Ground feels like, and for the most part is, a slow-moving, real plodding, cheaply made Italian zombie film of the sort made by Alessa Lucio Fulci in the 70s and early, early 80s. It's gory in that ponderous, overcooked, and mostly unbelievable way, you know? As scare scenes move at the lethargic pace of the movie's shambling zombie horde, and of course, there's lots of leering softcore titillation as well. But there is something else bubbling away under the surface. Something a little unusual. That something is the unique, unforgettable presence of Peter Bark. <laughs> an odd little bug-eyed man who looks uncannily like a midget Dario Argento. Here he plays an adolescent boy, perhaps around 12 years old, despite being maybe 26 years old at the time himself. Hard to know since, invitation, since actual information on Bark is sketchy. Even in this internet age, it's really hard to find out much about him. Either way, he looks unsettlingly wrong. If you told me he was 40 at the time, I would not doubt you for a moment. <laughs> uh, naturally, he is dubbed by a 40-year-old man doing a mock soprano slash child voice. Yeah. Uh, the reason the strange-looking adultist cast in the role of Mummy's Boy becomes abundantly clear in the film's tasteless standout moment, a moment that caused our screening to some sort of become eerily silent for a moment. <laughs> it pays off later in a tasteless bit of eatable schlock that make, helps make Beryl Ground one of my favourite grotty midnight movie specials. It is again. It's another unforgettable one. Like whereas, whereas I say, Sleepaway Camp is kind of entertaining the whole way through yeah. and has an unforgettable ending. A burial ground is like, as you say, glacially paced oh, for that first like hour. It's just like brutal. It's just like, what's going on here? Yeah, it's punctuated with Peter Bark kind of weirdness, and you're yeah. like, oh, okay. But then there's that part. Yeah, there's about halfway, you know, through which you just it's like, that whoa, pacing that helps make it work because you're yeah. sort of lulled into a sense of, ah, oh, it's a plodding dull horror film. Yeah. This kid. <laughs> This man kid thing's interesting, but it's really, and then like, oh, what is this? <laughs> yeah, you know? That's right. If it had been like a, quite a well moving film up to that point, I don't think that shock would have had. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and unfortunately, we can't give away, you no. know, because we, we really do want you to go out and hunt these things out. And especially, the best thing is to honestly take these five films and, um, you know, or any combination of these mm -hmm. five films and watch them with friends because I think you really enjoy them. Oh, they're great. They're great, like, audience participation kind yeah. of movies. Yeah, and especially yeah. if it's the first time you've seen them. Yep. Yeah. So while Sleepaway Camp had a Tony Award winner's last performance, 1988's The Uninvited is remarkable for not being the last performance of Oscar-winning actor George <laughs> Kennedy. It would be generous to call us B-grade. In fact, The Uninvited often struggles to raise its game above student film levels. The villain of the piece is a mutant creature hiding inside a normal cat. The feline stows away on a luxury boat that is being used as an escape vessel for wanted gang of mobsters. Needless to say, the characters' interactions make little sense as these high-end criminals invite two bikini-clad women they've just met who in turn invite, what, three guys they've just met who invite a cat they've just met on board. <laughs> Lots of invitations extended to people who should have remained uninvited. <laughs> 
There's lots of cheap cat versus human encounters, which involves inept play acting by the lead human characters. Some of the effects recall Peter Jackson's early horror work of like pulsing pustules ready to burst yeah. with monster infections. While the uninvited monster slithers out of the regular cat like a low rent, the thing from John Carpenter, there are large swathes of not much happening except for awkward seduction, 80s workout routines, and George Kennedy bemoaning how he has to share the boat with punks. And then suddenly just like three people die in five minutes. Yeah. (laughs) The uninvited cannot have been a good read on the script page, so Oscar winner George Kennedy only has himself to blame for accepting it, but you should accept it for for your movie marathon because it will be a surefire audience favourite and it contains the best line reading of it's not over yet in mm. cinema history <laughs> it really does it really does there's so much I love about this film uh, there's also a really great scene early on where the cat monster I don't know what it is yeah. attacks these two people in a pickup truck and the pickup cr- t- truck crashes off the road and there's like a million glass shatters Yeah, and they're all the same glass shatter <laughs> it's over and over and over again like they haven't even gone do we have a different glass sound so that we can yeah. change it up? Nah, just repeat that one again <laughs> and again and again. And it's slow motion too, and oh, yeah. it's just so terrible. <laughs> Love that film. Yeah, the Unavited is great, and it's it's perfect for like yeah, um, kind of eighties excess as well. Creepy outfits and boat yeah. shoes, and oh. and they got like all kind of Miami Vice villains, and um, yeah, yeah, it's it's brilliant, and it kind of does feel like some people are in different films from each other, you know, and and, and we've talked about Coven. Um, a, another one is, is not over yet. If I ever hear that, I always go, it's not over yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't do it justice. And you've got to see in context, but it's a, it's a, it's a great. Everyone moment. is bringing their A game as far as energy goes. Yeah. Um, which I really love about films like this. Yeah. I mean, everyone's acting big. Yeah. yeah. And the probably holds off. And they're probably bringing their A game and ability, which probably says a lot about their yeah, ability. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's not oh. like they're like, you know, downplaying it. I'm going to bring my C game. So I know you brought your A game. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's just your A game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you turned it up to 11, and that's yeah. all that counts. <laughs> that's right. Uh, look, for the final film of the night, I always figure it's a bit of a chance for the, for, the, for the programmer to just go for it, to choose something that they just enjoy and hope the audience goes with it as well. After all, if you've stayed this long, you know, if you've stayed to the uninvited, for, you'll watch anything, won't you? Yeah. Uh, in previous years, I played Lucio Fulci's bizarre, almost masterpiece, The Beyond. But for my final pick, I'm going with the weirdness that is... 1974's Blood for Dracula, a.k.a. Andy Warhol's Dracula. As played by a disturbingly thin Udo Kier with what looks like black shoe polish colouring his hair, Dracula is such an unforgettably delicious putz. Uh, He spends much of his time confined to a wheelchair and is constantly bossed around by his own servant. Worse, his attempts to get his fangs into a tasty virgin (laughs) are constantly foiled by local handyman and gardener Mario, played by Brooklyn-born beefcake Joe D'Alessandro who has been steadily ploughing his way through the local ladies. <laughs> it all leads to my favourite scene in the film, when the Count finally bites one of the lasses and discovers her blood is tainted, causing him to hilariously vomit her all back while crying, The blood of these whores is killing me! <laughs> Again. Uh, I, I think it's about like the third or fourth time we've mentioned that line. I it's know. brilliant. I love it every time. <laughs> Kia is actually really brilliant as the pathetic, self-pitying vampire. But I've also got a real soft spot for a little... Uh, Joe, Little Joe, D'Alessandro, a regular in Warhol films, who delivers the same performance, complete with thick Boston accent, whether he's playing a Lower East Side junkie or is here, an Italian socialist handyman. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Other pleasures include legendary neorealist director Vittoria De Sica as the cheerily oblivious patriarch of the family whose daughters are being one by one stalked by the Count, 
an account servant being bested by Roman Polanski in a barroom game. <laughs> um, Anu Jurging, who plays the servant to Kier's Vampire, was in so few films. He was in Flesh for Frankenstein, mm. which was made the following year. Uh, sorry, which was made the same year. But it's a real crying shame that I never see him anywhere else because I think he's kind of hilarious. You yeah. Know? Um, Blood for Dracula plays the Count's story as comedy for the most part, but under Paul Morrissey's direction, it becomes quite surprisingly and hilariously bloody in a, like this loopy, limb-lopping third act, uh, which gives our horror lineup a lovely kind of gory, red-blooded finale, I think. Yeah. It's an interesting one, this one, because um, oh, it's such an entertaining watch, but it's also quite knowing, isn't it? You know, like, And for that time, yeah. doing kind of essentially a horror comedy. Not, not much horror, to be honest. More of a comedy, right? Yeah, until the so, end. Yeah. Kind of more of like a, a gory yeah. comedy, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. Man, the sexual politics in that film, though, eh? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh, there's some lines in there that are unforgettable. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm certainly not going to repeat them. No, the that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that'll sound pretty brutal if we repeat some of those ones. Yeah. It's a great midnight film, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great, like, final yeah. one to finish on. You yeah, know, yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, it's it's terrific. And so, yeah, they're, they're five films, I think. Like, all yeah, five sure. of those, play those in a row, and you've just you got, you got the audience uh, yeah. satisfied, I think. I think so, eh? Yeah. Contemplate this on the Tree of Woe. Right, now we're up to our favourite part of the show, Tree of Woe, where we get to take something that's annoyed us in the month of cinema and put it up there on the tree and let it suffer under the hot sun and the attentions of the uh, of the vultures. Mm. So, Duncan, what's, what's annoyed you this month? One thing you probably know about me by now, dear listener, is I can get quite pedantic. You don't get to 75 episodes of a podcast by either being pedantic or risk unleashing a masked serial killer on the community. Uh, <laughs> luckily we haven't done the latter yet but the former we do regularly and my tree of woe this month is no exception I remember as a teenager that a friend of mine who was a painter detested words in paintings he felt that it was lazy and transparently manipulative that it was an admittance of incompetence at conveying a message purely through visuals this is how you're supposed to feel this is what I'm trying to say whether I agree with his assertion or not it always stuck in my mind and it's pertinent this month as I'm going after chapter titles in films. Title cards intermittently uh. peppered throughout films, mentioning a character name, a theme, or a story. I find them distracting and unnecessary, and at their worst, pretentious. It draws attention to the film as a construct, and when it does it six or seven times, as the latest Suspiria does, then it can become a countdown to the final credits. Again, it won't ruin a film. I mean, Tarantino does it a lot, and I still enjoy his work. But what are we in the silent era? I mean, there were less title cards in The Artist than there were in Suspiria. So on to the tree of woe with you, reoccurring title cards, and let the vultures pick at your superfluous words. Uh, I I really don't like it. And uh, I was talking to a friend of the show, Clayton Barnett, about this, and he was like, he really didn't like Suspiria very much. And he was like, oh, it's just, uh, I, I got to like act four. And at the beginning they'd said, oh, uh, yeah, uh, you know. And was seven acts. And seven acts yeah, yeah. with an epilogue. And he's like, oh, my God got so long to go and I know I was exactly <laughs> the same I started to go oh God, come on get to six please <laughs> yeah, that's give right. me some give me a break but yeah again my problem with Suspiria is it's it's so distancing yeah you know it's really hard you, that's a that's a killer for a uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a killer in comedy and it's a killer in horror where you need an emotional reaction to yeah. particularly and it's so distancing and um, yeah it just really frustrates me as well yeah. a good one for pointing it out yeah, yeah. I've forgotten how much I hated it yeah and it's not just that there's plenty of films that do it and again sometimes they do it really well um, but I, I just find I find it unnecessary more than anything else more all of those things you know there's, there's a lot of reasons you might want to do it I just find it unnecessary 
yeah. just just tell a story and it really draws it to it. This is a construct. Yeah. Draws me out of out of the drama yep. that's happening. And most of the time in a good film it's unnecessary and in a bad film it can just be yeah, pretentious. Great. Look, this is more of a sad, mournful tree of woe this month rather than a deep, angry bellow of woeness. Uh, as legendary film streaming site Filmstruck announced it was closing its doors, or whatever you call doors that only exist online, virtual <laughs> doors maybe, e-doors, I don't know. Admittedly, this won't be uh, painful news to New Zealand-based spoiler alerters, as Filmstruck was a subscription streaming site unavailable over here. Uh, though I had debated getting a, like a, a VPN and becoming a subscriber somehow. Oh, know, yeah. I thought that'd be kind of cool. Because Filmstruck had access to the libraries of the mighty Turner Classic Movies uh, and the Criterion Collection. Wow. Yeah. And as a classic film fan, that sounded like cinematic catnip to me. Mm. Uh, following a merger between Time Warner and AT&T, Filmstruck was judged to be uh, a bit niche, really. Not enough of a revenue earner. Which means, as someone smarter than me in the internet said, Warner's back catalogue of classic films can make real money by doing what they did before, moulding away in a vault, unseen and gradually forgotten. Oh. Yeah. But jokes aside, this is sad news for US-based film fans. And yet another reminder to the rest of us that classic and independent films truly are a dying breed. And that if they can't make a decent profit, why should anyone, sadly in particular studios who actually own these titles, care? As I've said many, many times before, if you want to keep those old films available, and not just the marquee titles, which will never disappear, DVD and Blu-ray are probably your only answers. Because in the end, if you love movies, it's up to you to keep movies alive. But it's the corporations who own the films. Just don't care. Yep. Yep. Good call. Yeah, that is uh, that is pretty sad. Yeah, I mean, that's a great service. And, and uh, you know, one of the only ways that people, you know, I've, I've seen so many people on Twitter sort of going, oh, man, if only there's a video store like that one in, you know, L.A. or whatever. Then yeah. Sort of, and it's like, yeah, well, there isn't. So good luck. Yeah, you know? that's right. Um, yeah, and it's, it's sad for that kind of... Um, those protection of film as well, that's something that um, a generation of filmmakers have, have concerned themselves with. But I, I hope that other filmmakers keep doing yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Scorsese obviously famously did it in a number of his generation. Yeah. Maybe a couple of guys later on, but it feels like there's not many you know yeah. directors in their 30s who are doing that now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like I say, you know, the big films, you know, Psycho's not going to disappear. No. Um, you know, Gone with the Wind's not going to disappear. Yeah. But other films might. I mean, I saw a film this last month called White Buffalo from 77. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, with Charles Bronson hunting down this white buffalo. Mm. And it was really weird and mm. wild and, and, you know, in, in ways not, not great. But it feels like one of those films that would easily disappear because, yeah. I mean, you know, what's the appetite for watching it? But I was so glad to discover it because it did some really interesting things. Yeah. You know, and uh, I worry about films like that, you know. Yeah, they're just, yeah, they're kind of... Um the unheralded ones. Yeah, just yeah, gonna absolutely. It's going to disappear from existence, basically. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. Okay, and so that's uh, spoiler alert for this month. Mm. So, Simon, what was your favourite film of the month? Yeah, I'm going to say Overlord, actually. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I just saw that last night. Mm-hmm. Um, was it the best film of the month? I don't know that it was, but it was a pretty enjoyable romp. Yeah. It was just a pure good time in a cinema watching Nazis getting shot in the face. <laughs> Um, it stars White Russell, Kurt Russell's son. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who is, this is the first thing I've ever seen him in. Right. And what struck me about him, and it's going to sound like a weird thing to say, is it was possibly the most macho masculine performance I've seen in cinema for a long time. Right. Like, you know, and I'm not saying it was a, uh, like, he's, it's not like he's a big muscly guy like a Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Something about his performance which was 
so masculine, you right, know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's rare. Mm. It's the sort of thing his father would have done back in the day, yeah. obviously. But it feels like he could have come out of a, you know, a 50s noir or a 40s western. Right. It felt that old-fashioned manliness, yeah. which is hard, not often seen on screen. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested by that guy now. Yeah, yeah. You know? I've only ever seen him in one thing, and that was Black Mirror. Yeah, a yeah. lot of people have said that to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, good fun. Good cool. fun. And what, what about you? What was your... Uh, well, look, <laughs> funnily enough, my favourite film of the month is a film with title cards. Oh. <laughs> After I just put it on the tree away. Uh, I saw a lot of good films this month, but the one that was engaging for its entire duration was Bad Times at the El Royale. Oh. Um, yeah, Drew Goddard delivers a stylish, patient film with a pair of excellent performances from Jeff Bridges and Cynthia Erivo. It's like a Tarantino film without the voluminous dialogue and pop culture references. What it does have is a subtextual commentary on America. And what's so pleasing about it is it doesn't get in the way of the story. Mm. In that sense, it is actual subtext. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and not that, front text. No, not front text. So, yeah, it sounds like an odd thing to praise, but it's just scantily achieved in mainstream films these days that it's bordering on Tree of Woe worthy mm. almost for me, that, that lack of, you know, kind of subtlety or nuance. Yeah. But Bad Times of the Old Royal also has Chris Hemsworth playing a role that 20 years ago would have been performed by Brad Pitt. Yeah. Uh, Open-shirted, flowing locks, full of charm and menace. <laughs> uh, Seamus McGarvey's cinematography is outstanding, and Goddard is happy to take his time rewarding the viewer with twists, suspense, and mystery. Uh, I really enjoyed this film, and title cards aside, uh, I really enjoyed those couple of performances, especially from Jeff Bridges, who's, you know, kind of, I guess, nearing the end of his career, and mm. then Cynthia Erva, who's, you know, probably beginning her career. Yeah. Uh, and she's so good in it, and she's got an incredible voice. So I was just like, where's, where's she come from? Mm. Like, she's an incredible singer, and she's a very good actress. And, of course, she's a British actress coming from theatre. Um, so that's where she's come from. Right, right. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I've never seen you before, and yeah. how have I never seen you before? So... Um, I'll be really interested to see what other people think. Um, I, I get the feeling I went along and saw it, and uh, my wife, Legere, and I both really enjoyed it, but there, was, there weren't many people in the cinema, mm. uh, and this was kind of like opening weekend, so on a Saturday night or something, I was like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> it's going to disappear out of the cinema pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I did think it would be one that would be more for the Rialto than kind of the mainstream event yep, cinemas, yep. but it, I saw it in an event cinema, so. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah. And the music we're going out to is uh, from Suspiria, from 2018 Suspiria by Tom York. Uh, it's called Volk. It's a fairly discordant piece that plays yep. uh, throughout. And I think they used bits of this in the trailer, which yep. was quite striking. Um, but yeah, uh, we were, you know, we would love to play you Goblin Suspiria. Um, <laughs> except, except we have. Yeah, probably, you know, it, it probably would be our outro music for um, the podcast every single episode if we didn't show some restraint. <laughs> well, I could, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, of course, you know, Simon and I both saw, um, I was talking about this this month with people who had seen Suspiria or were interested in seeing it, and I was talking about seeing the original Suspiria at the Civic with Simon and uh, Goblin performed it live. Magic. Yeah, and the more I thought about that, the more I was like, it's one of my favourite horror films of all time with a soundtrack I love played by those guys. I mean, that really is top level kind of wish fulfilment. So, yeah. Yeah, We're very lucky to have seen that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, thanks everyone for listening and uh, we will see you next month. All right, take care. Cheers.